0: scripture reading is Luke 24, 36 to 49. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why did doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Andrea. Well, good morning to you. I don't know if I'm on. I am. Great.
0: It's great, great to meet you. Hello.
1: Definitely on, (laughs) confirmed. It's great to see you, it's great to be together, and uh, I'm excited to share with you this morning what the Lord's put on my heart. Um, It was pointed out to me that this is my first message as a married man, so, yeah. From this point on, all my illustrations will be about marriage and love, so you can look forward to learning a lot from me on that front. If you're new here, my name is Jeff. I'm the Outreach Pastor, and uh, I'm excited to be able to share the word with you this morning. We're uh, nearing the end of our series looking at hospitality in the Gospel of Luke, where we've been focusing in and paying particular attention to the meals that Jesus shared with uh, the people that he interacted with and the significance of a meal and what we can learn as a people who are following Jesus, who want to become like Jesus, um, and how does, that, how does that impact how we interact with the world and what does hospitality show us about God himself. And so we're looking this morning at the passage that Andrew just read for us. Uh, we're right at the end of Luke's gospel. There's just a couple more verses after our passage, and uh, we're looking basically at the end of Jesus's time here on Earth. And this is one of the last meals that He had with with His disciples. And so, as we go into this, uh, I want to start with a Bible trivia question. So, uh, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna ask the question. I'm gonna give you a moment to think about it. You can maybe even share it with your neighbor. Don't yell it out. Just to confirm that you were right, if (laughs) or wrong, on your own. So here's the question What is the most frequent command in the Bible? What is the most frequent command in the Bible? Love the Lord your God, perhaps. That seems important. Do not lie. Seem to do that a lot. Worth repeating maybe loving your neighbor, seems Jesus-y. What do you think? Here's the answer. The most frequent command in all of Scripture is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This appears, if you're reading the translation, the NIV translation, 70 times throughout the scriptures. And that doesn't even include variants like fear not or do not fear. And so it's interesting to notice. Frequency does not necessarily imply priority or significance, but what I think it does imply is commonality. That fear is pretty universal. It's something that every person regardless of their culture or their moment in history, has experienced, and it seems to come up a lot. And so God seems to have to address it a lot. I think fear is one of the most prevalent and influential emotions a person can experience. Many things trigger fear in us. And I think fear is one of the easiest emotions to be controlled by. I think that because I think often fear disguises itself as wisdom. A number of years ago, there was a poll set out to determine what were people's greatest fears. And it found out that the number one answer for greatest fear is public speaking. (laughs) What I'm doing right now. So, if I do my math correctly, that makes me one of the bravest (laughs) individuals on the planet, actually. Second to that, number two was death. Number two was death. So, Jerry Seinfeld makes a joke about this poll, and he says that means that at a funeral, the average person would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. Which I think is like a funny joke, it's probably not technically accurate, but it's a funny little play on how we would answer that question. But actually I think the idea of t- talking in front of people plays into a fear that actually has a lot of control on us, and that's what people think of us. It's actually a significant fear that's hum- immensely influential. And so a question I want you to think about maybe in a more focused way this morning as we go through this passage is if you could reflect on your own life to think about and maybe you can identify what are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of? And I, I, don't, I want us to go a little bit deeper than spiders. Go, go a layer down, a couple layers down. And so what influences, what thought or scenario influences your emotions and your decision-making? It has an element of control over what you think and over what you do. The fear of failure. Failing in your business, in your relationships, in your education. The fear of weakness. The thought that you're not strong enough or good enough of a leader or you have your life together enough that you're weak. The fear of death, the unknown, the feeling of loss, immense loss. The fear of unimportance. Do I even matter? Do I add value to anyone or anything? Do I have any significance? The fear of people not liking you. The idea that your true self is not actually lovable or likable. The fear of differences. Not knowing how to interact with what's different than you. Not knowing how to perceive threats that you're not used to. The fear of change. The comfort of familiarity being taken away from you. The fear of rejection. The fear that you're not good enough. You're not what people are looking for. That you've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. The fear of losing control. The idea that you don't have the ability to control what's going on in your life i could go on these thoughts maybe i've scared you all but these thoughts as we look into our heart as we dive deeper into the layers below our decision making have huge impact on how we feel and what we do and how we interact with God himself, actually. In our passage this morning, Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem, in his freshly resurrected body. These are triumphant moments in the life of Jesus, because he's walking, and he's talking, and his body is now the living proof of all the claims he made about his identity, about his authority, about his power. Finally, he can show them, Look, I was dead, and now I'm alive. I wasn't lying to you. And so he's going around, he's taking the road to Emmaus, he's appeared to some people already, and now he's in Jerusalem, and he's coming back to his 11 disciples, the guys that were with him through thick and thin. Except when they abandoned him at the end. And he he's approaching them. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is peace to you. Peace. Now we're told that their response is fear. They were startled and frightened, the NIV says in verse 37. They were startled and frightened. There was, a, there was a streak there when Josh and Jess were dating and Josh Kloss and I were living together. Jess, Jess was around our house a bit more often. And uh, she thought it would be really fun, fun game to play, where she would hide, and as I'm coming home, she would jump out <laughs> and try to scare me. And I will admit, she's pretty good at that game. But I like to make a point as to clarifying, Jess, you did not scare me, you merely startled me. I'm not scared of you. (laughs) Let's be very clear about that. I'm not scared, you can't scare me. You may have startled me, I may have looked terrified, but it was just a startle. The disciples are startled and afraid. There's a lot of fear. And their immediate fear in that moment, the text tells us, is that they think they're coming into the presence of a ghost. Even though Jesus promised them that he would see them again, he made all sorts of claims that he would rise again. They, in in an ideal world, should have been expecting him, waiting for him. But now they see him, and their first thought is, it's a ghost, and of course, that would be a bit scary. And there's fear in that moment. They're startled. But I, I would suggest to you, as I was thinking about this passage and what Jesus is doing here, I think he's addressing a deeper element to their fear in that moment. That I think their fear is beyond just the immediate threat of, a, of a, something supernatural and they don't know if this ghost is going to hurt us or what. I, I think there's more to their fear in this moment because if you think about what would have been going on in their minds at this moment, that the thing that they had been placing their hope in for these last three years, they've been putting all their hope into Jesus being the Messiah, He'll, he's, he's dead, as far as they know. The, th- the thing that was their hope of future redemption and deliverance was gone. They had thrown all their money in, and they had bet on the wrong horse. Now, that that can play into a lot of fears. They would have looked like fools to everyone else. Their lives could be in danger, actually, because their leader, who was accused of leading a new movement against Caesar and the Romans, had just been executed. And so how are the Romans going to treat those that were following him, especially his closest followers? Their lives could have been in threat the movement they thought they were leading was now a failure. It failed, just like all the other movements where guys claimed to be messiahs and it didn't amount to anything. And on top of that, the future that they were probably already starting to live into and be excited about, was about to unfold was now just unknown. I don't know what's happening. I thought we had control over what's happening next, but who knows? And so the disciples, as they're gathered there in Jerusalem, would have had all kinds of reasons, deeper reasons than just, oh, is that a ghost? To be filled with fear as to what's happening next in their lives and what are they dealing with. And so Jesus approaches them in their fear, and like I said, the first words out of his mouth are, peace to you. Peace be upon you. Jesus is anticipating what they're feeling. And not surprisingly, those words, peace to you, don't just instantly create peace in their hearts. It's not like they're just filled with fear and Jesus says, "Hey, peace to you. Oh. Oh, good. It's gone. Fear is gone. In fact, Jesus' words and presence in that moment actually adds fear and skepticism. And so Jesus has to figure out how he's going to convince them that he's not just an apparition. And so the way he's finally able to do it, he starts telling them, he's trying to use arguments and, and, and let, hey, how, how could I be walking and talking if I'm a ghost? I'm here with you. And then the way that he finally is able to convince them is that he eats with them. Jesus takes a big old broiled fish and he eats it. And in sharing this meal with them and eating before them, which is in itself is maybe, doesn't stand out, but it's in this pattern of Jesus inviting in and sharing food together that we see him do this. And it's in this sharing of the meal and his eating that he confirms his physicality to them. Finally, they're convinced that, He's not just an apparition. He's physical. And there's this kind of this chain of events that would play out from that. These dots that instantly get connected. Well, if he's physical, well, that confirms that he's actually resurrected. And if he's actually resurrected, then that means that those things that he was saying about himself and the future and the claim that he is God with us is true too. And slowly... He starts, I think the dots start getting connected as they suddenly believe the reality of his resurrection. And it's no coincidence that Jesus starts actually from there, goes back to the scriptures, and he starts showing them, starting at the very beginning in the books of Moses, how all of the scripture was actually pointing to him in this moment of victory. And out of that confidence of his resurrection, Jesus sends them out to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Starting in Jerusalem to every nation, he sends them out. It's the series of realizations that ultimately lead to to being sent out. And if you look at the Gospel of Luke, and you see how the disciples interacted with Jesus and how he responded, you could easily accuse them of being quite fearful. They're constantly unsure, not sure if they, if they can actually trust Jesus with this. They're filled with fear on regular occasions. And this is the end of Luke's writing about the uh, life of Jesus, but it's not the end of his writing. He continues his writing right into the, uh, the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, you see a very different group of disciples. They're, in, in many ways, not to say that they don't ever experience fear, but in many ways, they seem fearless. And they start a movement called the church that would change the history of the world. This group of 11, scared, huddling, wondering what they're going to do next. It does not take long until the world is changed through their actions. And so the question that I want to ask here as we kind of work through this is, how do we deal with fear in our life? Now this is a big question. I don't think by any means I can cover all of what this is and we could do series after series on fear but I want us to start thinking about that this morning at least a little bit. How can we deal with fear in our life? Jesus offers peace to those who are afraid. How can we find transformation like the kind of transformation the disciples experienced? God keeps telling us over and over again in his word, do not be afraid, fear not. So there's something about it that he doesn't want us to be controlled by it or for our life to be marked by it. Jesus greets his disciples with peace. It's a common expression in the New Testament. Peace, peace, peace. How do we find peace in our life? How can peace replace fear? Fear. And so I just want to look at what the disciples realize in these moments. And I just want us to see how they play a role in in dealing with our fear. And so on a head level, we need to experience exactly what the disciples needed to experience. And that is, we need to come to a place of trust with God on these two fronts. The first front, I would say, is the sufficiency of God's power. The sufficiency of God's power. Is God able to make a difference in my situation? It's questions like, can God actually take care of me as I deal with this struggle, with this financial struggle, with this mental illness, with this, with this thing? Can God actually take care of me in the midst of it? Can he actually deal with the sin in my life that I feel stuck in? Or am I destined to keep living in guilt and shame? Will he actually give me what I need to do, the thing he's asking me to do? Will he actually provide me with what I need? Does he really have power over the grave? If I die, can I really trust that he has power over death? Or worse yet, what if someone I love dies? Can I really trust him in that? Can he actually bring healing to this overwhelming pain that I deal with? Can he actually do that? Is he actually is He sufficient in his power to do that? The disciples had to come to a place of trust on this front with God. And I, I use the word trust intentionally. I don't say certainty. They had to come to a, a, a level of trust that they were able to walk out, that it had pushed back on the fear that they were feeling. And seeing Jesus alive... Having victory over death pushed them to that place of trust. Seeing him eat in front of them and realizing he's got power over death. His power is sufficient. The second question, I think, or the second front that we have to come to terms with, which is slightly different, is the commitment of his promises. The commitment of his promises. Will God actually follow through? You know, people let me down all the time. Can I trust God to follow through? Will God remember me in the midst of everything else going on in the world? There's so much happening. Will God remember me? Will his promise come true for me as an individual? Or maybe it's to do with his timeline, The commitment of his promises, what's the timeline on that, God? I'm feeling like you're maybe missing it in my life. The disciples needed to come to a place of trust with God on these two fronts, both the sufficiency of his power and the commitment of his promises before the fear that had gripped them throughout the Gospels actually began to loosen its control in their life. And believing in the reality of Jesus' resurrection and seeing him. This is the true promised Messiah. That was the thing that finally gave them and brought them to a place of trust. I love that Jesus says in the Gospel of John, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Now I realized this morning that as the time of Jesus, of meeting Jesus in Jerusalem, as we get further and further and further away from that moment in history, there's more opportunity for doubt to come in. And I love that Jesus seems to have this understanding of, you've seen me, and that's a blessing, but even more blessing to those who believe me that don't have the privilege of of seeing me in person. And so this morning, we don't get to see Jesus eat a broiled fish and have the confidence of his resurrection from seeing him. But I believe with all my heart that the Spirit of God speaks to us in in our hearts. That 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 his church that you're surrounded by, not in, by the way, surrounded by, that he speaks through the church. And he speaks by his Spirit. And if you're here this morning... And you're not sure if you have all these reasonable doubts as to why, how can we trust the events that took place centuries and millennia ago? How can, we're so far away that, that maybe push that aside for a moment and listen to how God might be speaking to you in your heart and through the people he's put in your life right now. The reality of Jesus' resurrection changes changed everything for the disciples and it should change everything for us as we reflect on, is God really able to do this? Is he really able? Is he really committed? But I think there's another level that we need to trust God at before the fear loosens its control in our life. You see, fear itself is not good or bad. Fear is simply an emotion that identifies something we love as being threatened. Emotions in themselves are not good or bad things. They just reveal stuff in us. And fear is this distinct emotion where something that we love is being threatened. The quickest way to discover what or who we love is to find out what we're afraid of, actually. Fear can be really useful in us understanding ourselves. That's why you hear these reports of people that have been in like situations where they thought they were going to die, and in that moment, it was clear. They needed to call this person and let them know that they loved them, or they needed. They found out they had a a prognosis; they didn't have much time to live. They needed to reconcile with that person in that relationship, or in these in the moments of fear where the things are being threatened. There's clarity as to what's important. Our fear reveals in us the things that we love. And there are times when the things that we love are actually idols in our life. They've become idols in our life. Tim Keller says this, that we need to follow the pathway of our fears back into your heart to discover the things you love more than God. Your fears can act as this pathway and you follow it right back into your heart and it's in that place that you can discover the things that you've put above God. You've elevated him, them above your love for God. And so we should pay close attention to our fear because they can help us identify what's of the utmost importance to us. And so we, to, we need to grow in our trust in God's sufficiency of His power. We need to go grow in our trust of God's commitment to His promises. And in order for us to get to a place of loving God more than the idols of our hearts, we need to grow in our trust in, God's, in the reality of God's love for us. And on this front, we ask questions like, does God actually want good for me? Does God actually want good for me? Does God care about me in my suffering? Does he even notice? Is he interested in what's going on in the details of my life? Does God accept me after all that I've done? It's these kinds of questions that are actually addressing this idea is God's love for me genuine? Is it deep? Does it go further than my lack of love for him? It's the resurrection that gives us the confidence on God's promises and his power but it's the cross that gives us the confidence in God's love for us the depth of his love for us it's when you look at the the broiled fish that he the meal of the broiled fish that you can have the confidence to know that God is able and he's willing but it's the bre- it's the meal actually of the bread and the wine before the cross that gives us the confidence that he loves us that he wants to it's fine and good if he's able to and he can but does he want to does he care about me kevin talked last week about god being a yearning host it's not until we can see god fundamentally as a host inviting us in calling us in that he's a god of love that we'll be able to ultimately trust him with the affections of our heart. For so long, I've wondered what it would have been like to be there with Jesus when he was explaining the scriptures to them. The best Bible study you've ever been to. Jesus is revealing all the little secrets. And I wonder if Jesus would have started in Genesis chapter 3 where where God makes a promise to the serpent. He says, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. It's in the first chapters of all of scripture. There's this random promise. You're going to strike his heel, serpent, but he's going to crush your head your head. I wonder if Jesus was just so excited to let them know that was me. I crushed his head. I just did it. He's defeated. The power has been defeated. Genesis chapter 3 contains another interesting thing, and that is what I think is the origin story of fear on this planet. Adam and Eve didn't know anything about fear because they loved God most and nothing else they loved could be threatened. Fear as an idea, what, what, what is fear? I don't even know what that is. Everything is right and good. Until they decide to love something more than they love God. And then they took from the tree. And when God returns, he says, where are you? I'm looking for you. We used to walk and talk. And Adam and Eve are hiding. They're hiding behind a tree. And they said, we're afraid, so we're hiding from you. The very thing that represented what they loved more than God became the place of from which they hid from him. The tree. They took from it, and in that action, they said, I love you more than I love God. And then they hid behind that thing from him. And so as we close here, I want to ask you this morning. I've asked you, what are you most afraid of? I want to ask you this, what are you hiding behind this morning? What has become the place of your hiding? What, are you willing to follow the pathway of your fear back into your heart to see what you might be loving more than you love God? What fear is keeping you from Him? He's calling out in your life Where are you? Where are you? What are you hiding behind? What do you need to trust God with again? I want to close this morning by praying together. And if you feel comfortable, I would encourage you to just to close your eyes and to put your hands forward like this and just put your palms facing down if you feel comfortable doing that just in front of you. It's a symbol of letting go. I would encourage you to pray with me if you want to release fear to God this morning. And so, Father, would you see our you see our fear this morning? You see it even clearer than we see it. You see the control it has in our life. You see the freedom that it's robbing us from. And as much as we hate it, we know that it breaks your heart even more because you want freedom for us. And so this morning, Father, we hear your offer of peace. As we see Jesus approach his disciples and say peace to you, we want to hear that spoken to us here this morning, that you offer peace. So, Father, we want to grow in our trust of the sufficiency of your power this morning. We want to grow in our trust in the commitment of your promises to us. We want to grow in our trust in the depth of your love for us. And so, Father, in this moment, we let go. We let go of this, and we want to hold on to your hand. So we lift our eyes away from the things that we're loving more than you, and we we want to look to you, the one who laid his life down for us the one who has power over the grave, the promised Messiah, the Lord of all creation, our Father in heaven. We pray these things for your glory. Amen.